Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are great and gracious, kind and benevolent, righteous and merciful, and so we continue to praise you. And Lord, we look into this word this morning that has something to inform us about the way that we will come to be with you. And so, Lord, give us hope and encouragement. We have surely battled our sin this week at times we've lost. And so we ask you to forgive us and make us whole and cleanse us and sustain us and cause us to be more than conquerors through this living hope. So, Lord, in these moments, we pray that we would be sanctified. Pray that our hope and the expectation of glory would allow us to endure what we endure like Christ did because of our solid faith in what's to come by your solid promise. Lord, all these things we hope for, we ask for, we need desperately. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, as Andrew Darby mentioned, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. By the way, when Andy looks as pretty as he does today, he's Andrew, okay? When he's wearing Air Jordans and jeans, he's Andy, all right? We just want to get that clear. So, I know he appreciates that. All right. You ever have a bad dream? I have bad dreams, and when other people in my house have bad dreams, I hear about those or have to deal with those. And the only consolation that we get from bad dreams is that they're dreams. You wake up, and things are okay. The reality of the dream turned out not to be the reality of life. So refreshing. So... um, refocusing of the gladness of your heart it's 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 turning a bad thing into a good thing and and the most comforting thing about a bad dream being a bad dream is that when we wake up that awful image or scene has passed away it's been replaced with hopefully the goodness that we wake up to. And why Paul is so intent on communicating the second coming of Christ in this letter is that what the Thessalonians are enduring is not in vain. In other words, they're enduring for a purpose that all of this will pass away and what will be left, what will be revealed, what they'll wake up to after they've fallen asleep, as he uses that term often, is they'll wake up to the glory of Christ surrounding them by his presence with them. Which, as we'll see in a minute, would also mean that he has taken captive or taken over the powers that be that oppress his people. And he ends chapter 4 by saying, um, encourage one another with these words. Something we went over in Sunday school this morning. The hope of eternity and the hope of the resurrection in Jesus Christ is everything to us. If we don't have it, then I'm not going to be here. You're not going to be here. 
What's the point in it? Like Paul says, we eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But if the resurrection actually occurred, and we're kind of priming the pump for Easter this morning, if it actually occurred, then that informs everything about what we do with life now, because eternity is coming, and what happens now bears weight for all eternity. And so we look deep into these things to find encouragement. And as I mentioned before, Jesus is enduring the shame of the cross because of the glory that is set before him. He knows what he has to endure, why he has to endure it. He's all in. He is in love with his Father and in love with what the Father is doing. And so he's going to accomplish it. And it's going to be hard and difficult and, and miserable at times and agonizing. And no one has ever done what he's done. Uh, take on the wrath of God and its fullness for sin that's not his. And he's going to do that because he knows what is to come. And so if the resurrection is real, then everything we endure will be vindicated at the final day. Everything we do will serve an eternal purpose. Everything that we endure will be as nothing, Paul says, as compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us in us. So it's everything. And so Paul told them in verse 14 that, that, that God, through Jesus, will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Okay? They're, they're, they're not dead. He's not a God of the dead. He's a God of the living. And so they're going to they're gonna come back together with Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus. And then in verses 15 through 17, he's going to explain how that happens. And he takes a little short discourse there to do it because it's so important to have those words. Because of what was revealed to Paul by a word from the Lord is, is to serve our hope. The Thessalonians are struggling. Paul is struggling. Some of them will be given over to death because of their faith. How are you going to endure that? Why? Why are you going to endure that? Chuck Colson, the, uh, one of the masterminds behind Watergate, who quickly became a Christian after his time uh, in prison, communicated how fast everybody who was involved in Watergate turned over when they were pressed, when they were threatened with more time and threatened with more penalties and how quickly they all confessed and, and gave over the plot and the schemes. But he said of the apostles and the disciples throughout history, we never give up anything because it's the truth. Just like those who witnessed the resurrection of Christ could not deny the very fact that he came and he ate with them and they touched him and they hugged him and he spoke with them. They can't lie about that. So if you want to kill me for telling you what I saw and what I touched, that's on you. I've got a hope that is yet to come. I know it. It's been vindicated and shown in the resurrection of Jesus, who I ate breakfast with after the fact and touched the holes in his hand. We can't, we can't deny the truth. 
And they're our forebearers and and making sure that we understand that thing so that so that we can be sure of the hope that is to come. So when it is demanded of you by persecution uh, that you that you deny these things, you won't deny these things. You can't deny these things. If you know these to be truth, if all your hope and faith is in the things that you haven't seen, but that have been fully confirmed by the appearance of the resurrected Christ to our uh, apostles and teachers, you'll endure everything. I mean everything. And in fact, in Romans 8, uh, Paul says you'll be more than a conqueror. And the list is pretty exhaustive there. Everything that could come against you, everything that could seek to threaten the separation between you and Christ is pretty exhaustive at the end of Romans 8 there. And, and Paul says that's not going to separate you. Why? Because your spirit the Spirit is testifying with His Spirit that you are children of God. And if children of God, then heirs with Christ. If Jesus was resurrected, that is proof that God is giving Him what He earned by His righteousness. He's giving Him all that He has. And He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so we are supposed to not only grieve in such a way as those who have hope, but we are to live as those who have hope. And we gain hope through the words, through the revelation of Jesus to these men. That it's been written down, recorded, and sustained for us so that hope is sustained. Do you, Side note here, the, the Bible is, is so incredible, not only because God wrote it, but because God has it here intact today. If, if you search church history and understand the great links that some men have taken to preserve this, to translate this, to carry this to throughout the world, you would be utterly astonished and, and fully informed that God himself brought this here today. And, and I love Jerry's prayer because we aren't supposed to take for granted the things we've been given. Most importantly, the word. It is, it is so insane to, to people throughout the world that we have such access to God's word at, at the snap of your finger. You can open your phone and be filled with the word from the living God and be filled then with hope. You can go to each room in your house and find one and be filled with the hope of the living God. You can go there and you can hear from the living God. It's utterly incredible the opportunity that he's given us for hope. And, you know, people have lived in some crazy times throughout history. Amen. And we live in crazy times. But you and I display to the world something about the gospel when we don't freak out and start flying off the hinges about what's going on here and there and who's doing what. We endure these things under the realization and the promise that Jesus is coming. So why don't we prepare for that? 
first and foremost. Now, in these few verses, we could actually stick around there for another three sermons and discuss some of the aspects of the rapture, of the coming of Jesus, all the different aspects. But I'm going to take them all together because they're going to be simultaneous anyway. Because I'm in the school of thought that when Jesus comes back, everything they've talked about uh, about his return happens. Okay, I don't believe in two returns of Christ. I don't believe in a secret return when some people just disappear, like the Left Behind series, and then we're wondering, where did they go? No, when Jesus comes back, the Bible makes perfectly clear Everybody's going to see him. It is going to be no mistaking what is taking place. And I don't know if you ever find yourself outside when it's quiet and you think someday he's going to break through the clouds. There's going to be this trumpet sound, this, this processional of a king coming in glory, and it is going to get everybody's attention. It's not, you're not going to have to run down the basement and be like, hey, babe, come upstairs. Jesus is, is here. No, everybody's going to be captured and captivated by the fact that the Lord has arrived. And that's, that's how I interpret Philippians 2. When, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, there's going to be no mistaking who that is. You're not going to be able to lie. You're not, everybody's going to look at you like, okay. Bad news for you, man, because that's who that is. You're going to know. You're going to know. And, and Paul makes that clear. Jesus makes that clear. John makes that clear in the Revelation. There is no secret return or coming of Christ. It's a big deal. So Paul says in verse 15, or Paul, Silas, and Timothy say together, we declare to you, by a word from the Lord. They are telling, they're saying something that the Lord himself told or revealed to them. Now, Paul's an apostle, we're not. So if we're going to say something about a word from the Lord, we better be talking about the Bible. But Paul had the complete authority and the mission, the job, to be a direct messenger about revelations about things to come and about things that are. And we are still learning from the same word and the same apostles <coughs> that the early church did. So they have some revelation from Jesus himself about what is to take place. And the Thessalonians, right, were, were extremely worried about this. They were, uh, persecution was, was gaining steam and was becoming more and more intense for them. And, and they were wondering about, they were focused on last things. They were, they were wondering about those who had already died because it had implications for them as well. But they were also worried because false teachers had crept in and begun to whisper uh, silly things to them. In other words, some of the things that they probably thought were, Okay, if, if people died before the resurrection of Jesus, then they're not going to be resurrected. Well, you can go all the way back to Job 19, and you can find Job says, Hey, I understand this. My flesh or my skin will die, but in the flesh I will see God. 
How does Job understand that? How does David understand that? How does Isaiah and Daniel understand these things? The Lord has made it clear from a direct word. And we are reading that revelation so that we can have hope. So here's the explanation of how, through Jesus, God's going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, there is no two resurrections, so to speak, of God's people. There's one. Those who are dead and those who are alive, as in the flesh. When Jesus comes, they're all coming up. Those who are dead are not necessarily going to be first. They're just going to be together. It's all going to happen simultaneously. We can describe <coughs> these events in, in certain ways and certain aspects, but, but what you need to think about the second coming of Jesus is it's, it's all going to happen together. And what we're going to see later on is it's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet sound. When he says, rise, like he's said to Lazarus and like um, the apostles say to that little girl that was dead, uh, when he says, rise, we rise. We come out. We're transformed in a moment to the eternal beings that are going to dwell with God as he has planned to dwell with us for all eternity. It also presents something important about the, our actual bodies. That we're not talking about some mystical, spiritual uh, resurrection. We're talking, really, like those who died, like their body no longer houses their soul, right? They're inanimate. They, like us, who are actually alive at the time of Christ's coming, will be living with him. Okay, we're going to all be together. He's a God of the living. And so it kind of presents to us the importance of the body now. We, we value this as not the eternal vessel, but as a shadow of it, that we're going to be tangibly touching the scars of Jesus that present to everyone that he was the lamb who was slain for our transgressions and so we are also to value the body now as a temple for the Holy Spirit that testifies that we're children of God awaiting that resurrection so we treat these a certain way or we hope to we try to it's some of the reason that uh, for centuries uh Christians have been opposed to cremation. Now, cremation is not wrong. Let's get that out of the way. It's not wrong. But, but what people were saying was this is going to actually come out of the ground. God's going to actually call this dead, lifeless body to life. Now, obviously, uh, even bodies that have been buried have decayed and have, and have become no more. So, so God is able to create from nothing something. We've already established that by the fact that the universe exists. 
So if you have cremated a loved one or if you are to be cremated, I wouldn't worry about it. God's going to take care of that. He can put the pieces back together. He's better at puzzles than we are. So trust that. Rely on that. But value the vessel you've been given. Treat it in such a way. It's, a, it's now a holy thing. Think about the, the temple in, in the old, well, even in the beginning of the New Testament, before A.D. 70 when it was destroyed. Uh, it's a holy place. That's why Jesus was so upset when he went in there and saw all this commerce going on. People profiting off of sacrifices and all this sort of stuff. It's a holy place. So what are you going to do with that holy place you've been given? Your body is no longer this, this dead, lifeless thing. It's been given life in Christ by his spirit. And so you are to treat that in a certain way. And a lot of times we don't meditate on the fact that, that you're, you and I who have believed, trusted in Christ, been born again by his spirit, we are holy beings. We cannot any longer tie our bodies to unholy things. So anyways, we're, we're, we're going to be together. With those who have died, those who are alive, we're going to all be together with the Lord. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. The Lord himself will descend. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 talks about this scene. I saw in the night visions, Daniel says, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That is Jesus. He's going to be presented in glory, in a cloud of glory not necessarily like the clouds we see, but glorious clouds. I, that's all I can say. I don't have to describe them to you. I don't know if they're laced with gold or sparkling in such a way. I don't know. I just know that they're God's gloriful, glorious clouds. And that's how he's coming. They're going to they're gonna illuminate and, and highlight and outline who he is and his glory. Remember in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And I always laugh when I read this. I don't know why, but I, I see the apostles, right? They're standing there, and the, it's been a whirlwind for them, right? Like, man, Jesus was crucified. I saw it. And then he's resurrected, and we ate together, and we spent time together, and we talked, and we saw those scars, and we saw him in this glorious form. And then, and then we just watched him, and he, and he just went up to heaven, and we saw it. And you can picture them. They're all just with their mouth open, just staring and then they don't even notice that the angels are beside him. And they're like, yeah, well, 
what you just saw, he's going to come back the same way. And they're like, oh, there's angels here. I mean, they're just captivated. They're just floored by what they're seeing. And it's just glorious, right? And, and the angels are assuring them, hey, that's going to happen again. And this time, he's coming back for you. So even more glory, right? Triumphal king entering. Revelation obviously has much to say about this return. It tells us in the beginning of Revelation that, that we're going to all see him do this in his glory. Um, he's going to descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. Matthew 24, 31, starting in verse 30, picking up with the language of Daniel 7. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. I, I often think about and meditate on what that sound will be. It will be an arresting sort of sound. It, and it compares it to a trumpet. We often see that. We even see that in the Old Testament when God's people go out to battle. There's a, there's a, a trumpet call. It's a, it's a victorious, royal call. And it's not going to be like how you and I might pick up a trumpet and play it. It's going to be heavenly. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Like, I don't know. I, I just know that it's going to be such a sound that, that you and I will be so directed towards it, moved by it, shaken by it. Everything will stop. Everything will, will be set on attention to the Lord. In the ancient world, when a, uh, well, I'll save that for later. That's good stuff. I'll save it for later. So anyways, the dead in Christ will rise first. That could mean also that we are, in essence, if, if we are believers, we have all died in Christ, right? We have all put to death the old man. We've been resurrected with Christ to new life. And so that could be what that is pointing to. It could be the fact that those who are dead actually have to uh, come again to life, to a physical body, right? So it could be talking about how that takes place in a simultaneous manner, but, but first, before we're all together in a glorified sense. Okay, so don't get hung up on stuff like that. It's all going to be happening together. And then we who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, this is super interesting. The word for meet is, is a distinct royal greeting word that Paul uses. And only in a few places throughout the scriptures do we see this. This word literally means or carries with it the idea of when an emperor or a king or a dignitary used to come to a village, a city or whatever, a province, 
there would be a pronouncement or, or a scene of his coming before he even got there. And the people who were glad for his coming, who were royal, loyal subjects, would run out of the city to meet him. And there, there would be this reunion, this, this glad that you're here, all this sort of stuff. And then they would go in this city together in kind of a triumphal manner. And guess who was left in the city? The people that were awaiting judgment from this government or from this monarch or whatever. But, but the people that were glad that he was here went out to meet him. And then they came back in. And that's exactly what we see uh, in Revelation 20. When, when the, the new Jerusalem is coming down from heaven, right? We, we, we are, are coming with Jesus to, to reign and, and, and oversee and live in and exist in this thing in celebration. And he is going to be coming to judge the living and the dead. To remove those in sin in opposition to his reign, and to replace it with a new city illuminated strictly by his glory and inhabited strictly by his people. The enemy has no more territorial reign or space in that place and in that time. Then he also asks, well, is there going to be an actual literal, like we're going to fly up to the air and then come down with him? Well, possibly. I don't know the details of how that's going to work, and we're not really told. You could take it at face value and say it'll be something like that. And you can also read in Revelation 8 that there's going to be a revealing of the sons of God in glory that all of creation has been waiting to see. And so certainly he will put on display uh, not only his glory, but how that has transformed you and I into glorious beings. The whole world will notice that. They will see that. How they're going to see it, I don't know, but they're going to see it. And, and one of the beautiful things that you need to hold on to in these passages is, is these words about, like, together. And and with him, and in him. God's eternal plan and purpose <clears throat> is to create a people that he can dwell with. He cannot dwell in the midst of a sinful people. So he has to create a people for himself, which he has done in Jesus. Therefore, he can dwell in the midst of such a people. He can live. He can tabernacle. He can exist. His glory can be on full display and reach within reach for a people that he has called and made. So the desire of God is to be together with his people. That should be that should cause you to pause for a while. That he would want to be with me. I think one of the beautiful things we learned in that book, Gentle and Lowly, was that he presses in to you in your life. You, who still struggle with sin, he comes in 
because he's about the business of making you like his son who is acceptable according to the law. You're not. You're a sinner. Let me include me in that, first of all. And he presses in with his love, with his mercy, with his grace, by his spirit to make you like his son so that you will dwell in glory with him someday, perfectly glorified, perfectly able to be there with a robe that you didn't make and that you didn't buy, with a robe that he placed on you by his son. And right now, he is fitting you for that robe, so to speak. And it's not that, well, you know, I just can't get the fabric right and it's just not going to work, so sorry, you know, go over there. No. He, he will surely do it. That's what I love most about the end of this letter is, look, he's going to do it, period. Psalm 22. Oh, let's take a rabbit trail there. Psalm 22. Jesus praying this on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the time you get to the end of Psalm 22, the psalmist is filled with utter, extreme, unmitigated uh, hope because what? Because God will surely do it. That's why our hope is in him alone. Because I'm not going to meet him in the air by my own strength. I can't fly. But he'll bring me up there, however that works, and he'll, and he'll fit me with the, the royal robe that presents me as a, a royal subject. Not only a royal subject. Let's remove that language for a second. As a son. He calls us heirs with Christ. So your inheritance is going to be revealed there. And it's not going to be in the form of a check. It's going to be in the form of a new heavens and a new earth. With the presence of your God in front of you. We'll be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. One thing I love also about this is Ephesians chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 2, it talks about the prince of the power of the air, which right now is Satan. That he's kind of exercising some power in this world. That's obvious. But when Jesus comes, he's going to run and hide like a scared little dog. Because his day's over. Jesus takes back all authority, all rule, all reign in all places. Satan no longer has any ability to do anything but join his fellow um, demons and sinners in the lake of fire. That's his end. And he knows it. So that's why he's working so hard. To blind minds of unbelievers from the glory of Christ. Because he's Let's just say a little bitter about all this. And he's going to try, although he can't, and destroy as many with him as he can. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's, that is promise from him directly. I will never leave you nor forsake you. First thing he says before he ascends to the right hand. And right now, while he's not with us in body he's with us in spirit and then all that's going to come together simultaneously and he'll be together with us in body 
going to be fitted perfectly together with him, with the Lord. So therefore, what are you going to do with that? Do we just take these as argument points for our position on how the rapture is going to happen? No. We encourage one another with these words. That's what it's for. That's what the study of last things is for. That's what the book of Revelation is for. It's for our encouragement. It's for our hope. It's not for our speaking tours on blood moons so we can sell out arenas. It's for hope. Revelation 21. Listen to this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. What you have in the rapture of the church or the coming together with Jesus in, to meet him in the air as he triumphantly enters uh, space and time once again, what you have is the consummation of God's plan to dwell with his people. You have something that is far greater than a, a, a wedding day. Those things are shadows. Those things are the metaphor for what is to come. Let me encourage you with some last words here. Towards the end of chapter 21, John saw this. He saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. And so you and I live and we wait. But we wait in hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. Brothers and sisters, Paul writes this and we communicate this here today because these are sure things. This is, this is how the Puritans would have communicated the idea of this passage. The supreme comfort of the surety and verities, which means truths, sureties and verities of resurrection in Christ. The sure truth and reality that he is coming again and if you hope in him, what a glorious sight that will be. Don't you want to take part in that? I, I pray you do. So if you've lost sight of your hope, I pray that you'd regain it by repenting in this hour, responding to God with your desire, gladness that he has 
won that victory for you and promised to meet you again. And then we'll stand and sing together.